if I might, uh, before I begin, I'm this afternoon taking a group of students from Opelousas Junior High and Opelousas High to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event. Um, they have a, a pastor from Baton Rouge who's a former professional football player, actually, uh, was coming to speak, and so he'll share his testimony, and um, hopefully it'll be a good uh, evangelistic event and uh, lead and guide the kids into how, how they can live out the Christian life. So um, pray for us as we go there this afternoon. Our scripture reading this morning is from Joel chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 17. You can find that on page 761 of your pew Bibles. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a fire of flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. 
and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and divinely inspired word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us life according to your word. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths. Help us, Lord, not to stray from your precepts. Um, Lord, make your testimonies the joy of our hearts. And Lord, would you um, speak to us this morning, Lord, and and teach us. um, Lord, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. Um, Open our ears, Lord, that we might hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you recall, two weeks ago we looked at Joel chapter 1, and we remember that Joel is a prophet of God. He speaks, or in this case writes, uh, the word of the Lord to us. Um, What was happening in Judah at that time was something that would be told down through the generations. And here we are, thousands of years later, still talking about it. Uh, The Lord himself was fighting against his people. Uh, We read of an invasion of locusts that ate up all the crops, leaving the people with no food and without an offering to bring into the temple of the Lord. And Joel, again, doesn't tell us exactly why the Lord's judgment is upon uh, Judah, but we can surmise that the, that the people have not been faithful to the covenant of Moses, the covenant of works, and they're enduring the curses due to them by this covenant. And in the last half of chapter 1, we heard the Lord's call for repentance through the prophet Joel. Uh, chapter 2 continues in this theme with a further warning of coming destruction and a call to return to the Lord. Uh, we'll consider these 17 verses of chapter 2 in, in two parts. The first Uh, The day of the Lord in verses 1 through 11, and a second call to repentance in verses 12 through 17. So let's uh, learn what more we can learn about the day of the Lord in the first 11 verses of Joel chapter 2. The picture here is of an invading army. And this army, while it's presented in terms of an army with horses and chariots and an invasion of the city, um, it's likely that it refers at the time of Joel's writing to this invasion of locusts. Uh, Not that that makes the invasion any less devastating. Uh, Whether man or insect, the destruction is great. And um, these swarms of locusts block out the sun. They decimate the land. Um, They overrun entire cities. And there's yet another announcement in verse 1. The day of the Lord is near. It is coming. Uh, This overtaking army is a warning of future judgment. This invading army is not just bad luck or the will of a power-hungry ruler, but these invaders are actually at the command of the Lord God himself. They are God's instrument of justice and judgment on a people who have turned away from the Lord, who chose them and set them apart and has been their merciful Savior throughout history. And uh, this, this invasion should be announced by a trumpet blast in Zion, on Jer- in Jerusalem, on the Lord's holy mountain. And what effect should sounding this alarm have? It says... Verse 1, let the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord should strike fear into the hearts of those who have not fled to God for refuge. Uh, John Calvin says this, the design of the prophet is to stir up by fear the minds of the people. The object of the narrative then is to make the people sensible that it was now no time for taking rest. In verse 2, we continue with more description of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be a day of darkness, of gloom, of thick clouds, 
Uh, typically, we think of God's presence as light. First uh, John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, Revelation 21.23 tells us of the new Jerusalem. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in heaven, God's glory shines even brighter than the sun. Yet on the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes in judgment, it is a day of darkness. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, describe this coming judgment on Babylon uh, using darkness and, and similar imagery. Isaiah 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make their, the land a desolation and to, des- to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pompous pride of the ruthless. So Isaiah made it known that the sun and moon would be dark on the day of the Lord. And while Isaiah prophesied the judgment on the coming day of the Lord against Babylon, Joel uses this same imagery to prophesy against his own people, Judah. Um, God truly shows no partiality. Um, Judgment will come first for Israel and then for the nations. In verse 3, the fire devours the land. Uh, We remember that Yahweh appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 in the burning bush as fire. Uh, But the burning bush there was not consumed. Uh, Here the fire devours the land and leaves it barren in its wake. Uh, Fire has historically been a symbol of the Lord's holiness and a tool of the Lord's judgment. We know, of course, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, where fire rained down from heaven to destroy the cities. And at Korah's rebellion, recorded in Numbers 16, after the earth opened up and and swallowed the sons of of Korah, we read in Numbers 16, verse 35, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. The New Testament is is consistent that God will come with the fire of judgment on the day of the Lord. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The Bible is clear that those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel will only receive God's vengeance and suffer eternal punishment. In the last part of verse 3, the land is like the Garden of Eden before this army and a desolate wilderness behind them. It's a picture of utter destruction. It's a reminder that though God gave the Jews this land flowing with milk and honey, uh, God could quickly make it a wasteland. Uh, God sends rain on both the righteous and the wicked. It's a warning that we should not be so comfortable with God's gifts that we don't think we need his mercy as well. Verses 4 and 5, this invading army appears like war horses with the the sound of chariots. Uh, These invaders would move quickly and powerfully with confidence and fight valiantly against the people. Though they may be as small as locusts, they are a forceful instrument of divine judgment. 
Uh, We see that man here has lost control of his environment, and the creator God uses his creatures as his chosen method of judgment. Uh, God, however, is in complete control of his creation. In verse 6, the people of the land have no hope. Their faces grow, grow pale. They're in anguish. And such is the state of the unbeliever before our all-powerful God. Any resistance is futile. There will be no escaping the fire of hell for those who have chosen to forsake God and have failed to repent and return to the Lord. In verses 7 through 9, uh, we have further description of this invading army. Uh, These locusts are like warriors and soldiers. They march valiantly. There's nothing that can be done to deter them. They scale walls. Um, The weapons are useless against them. They jump on the city. The walls are no obstacles. They're undeterred as they enter houses through the windows. You know, against an invasion of of human soldiers, people might have a chance. You know, we know what's necessary to defeat a man. Even against uh, an attacking army with horses and chariots, there's a possibility of defending the city. But against these swarming swarming locusts, uh, what can be done? Um, They accost people even in the privacy of their own homes. Uh, When God's judgment comes, no one can escape. And historically, this has been the effect of swarms of locusts, devastation on a people. In 1864 through 1875 in Algeria, in northern Africa, um, swarms of locusts came year after year. It was worse in 1866, and an estimated 200,000 people died of famine due to the destruction of these locusts. For the people of Joel's day, there was nothing that could be done to prevent this locust invasion. In verse 10, we see that the sun and moon are darkened. The stars even stop shining. Uh, This could refer to the the locusts that that, uh, fill the sky to block out the sun, but it is only a foreshadowing of the darkness of the day of the Lord, where instead of a natural event blocking out the sun, God himself will bring darkness on the land. The sin of the people is not a private matter. It's not a personal matter. It's an issue that affects all of humanity and all of the cosmos. For the unrepentant sinner, the day of the Lord, again, will be devastating. It will be darkness and not light. As O. Palmer Robertson says, both in the Old Covenant and the New, God's coming in judgment disturbs the very foundation of of nature's order. And if it wasn't clear at this point in verse 11, uh, it's reiterated that this invasion is not a mere force of nature, not a random event, or even the will of the ruler of a foreign nation. This invasion was commanded by the voice of the Lord himself. This invasion comes with the, the power of the word of God. Not only are God's people subject to God's judgment, but the whole created universe trembles with a holy fear on that day. Uh, Verses 1 and 11 serve as bookends to this section of Joel, both verses referring to the day of the Lord. Uh, Verse 11, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is a question that does not require a response. The answer is obvious. No one can withstand or endure the day of the Lord. And it's a reminder, again, that this is the condition of the unrepentant sinner, even today, subject to God's judgment. Uh, they will endure eternal fire, the wrath of God against sin. The fact that, they, uh, that Judah were descendants of Abraham uh, could not save them. Uh, the same is true for us. Uh, the faith of our parents or grandparents is insufficient to save us. We must have a personal faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
The fact that they were members of, of Israel, Judah, the chosen race could not save them. For us, uh, church membership, while important and good, uh, will not be what saves us. Even attending church regularly, while important and good, is not what saves us. No salvation from judgment on the day of the Lord requires something, something more. And so we have seen this frightening warning of the coming day of the Lord in verses 1 through 11. Let's continue on in Joel chapter 2 to see what repentance would look like for Judah. In verses 12 through 17, we have a second call to repentance. All hope is not lost. In verse 12, the Lord declares, yet even now. Though these people have been stubborn and for years have been obstinate and disobedient, though they have thus far disregarded the Lord's call to return and repent, and even as the Lord is sending a harsh curse upon them for their unbelief, uh, it is not too late. The Lord urges them through Joel, yet even now return to me with all your heart. David Guzik points out that it wouldn't make their repentance any less valid just because they had to be scared into it. The important thing is that they return to the Lord sincerely. To turn to God would mean to turn away from sin. You know, we can only be going in one direction. We're either going toward God or, or toward evil. The Lord call, calls the people to turn to him. And it can't be done casually or apathetically. Uh, they must come to God with their whole heart, surrendering completely to God and calling upon him alone for mercy. In the last half of verse 12, we see that sincere repentance requires action and emotion. They are to fast, they are to weep, they are to mourn. Uh, True repentance requires a change of both heart and behavior. True repentance is internal. So the Lord warns them to rend their hearts and not their garments. Verse 13, you know, to tear your clothing as as a sign of sorrow and distress for sin was a somewhat common practice, but that outward sign could be done insincerely. So he reminds them, uh, tearing your clothes would not be sufficient. Uh, David reminds us, us of this in his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, which we just, just sang about. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, he's speaking to God. He says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We might be able to fool other people into thinking uh, our words and our signs of repentance are are real, but the Lord is not fooled. Uh, He sees and he knows our hearts, and he will not be misled by hypocrisy. Matthew Henry says, We rend our hearts because of our sin, and then God will rend the heavens and come down to us with mercy. My brother Justin is about a year younger than me, so we grew up together for the most part. Uh, we shared a bedroom for most of our youth, and um, we spent a little, quite a bit of time playing together and, and such growing up. Um, as we got older, especially as we spent uh, summers home from school, um, we had various chores that we had to do around the farm as we raised cattle and um, showed them in 4-H. So we had to, you know, halter break them. We kept them uh, tied up in the barn during the day. We kept them washed and groomed and cleaned up. And as you might expect. That also, mean there, that also meant there were disagreements or jealousy or, you know, when, when Justin wouldn't do his share of the chores or wouldn't do them when I wanted him to do them or on my schedule, uh, we did our share of fighting. And I remember a few instances where one of us uh, wronged the other and 
uh, mom or dad would make us apologize and, and you know, tell your brother you're sorry. Uh, so if I weren't being too stubborn at that point, I might say the quietest and least sincere I'm sorry I could muster. And if mom wasn't satisfied with that, she would sometimes go a step further and say, now give your brother a hug. And so we would give each other the shortest hug with the least contact possible. Um, and in those instances, I'll speak for myself in saying that my repentance was not often wholehearted or very sincere. Um, I was sorry that I got in trouble maybe, but usually I felt like I was right and that my anger or my response was, was justified. And while I might have been able to fool my parents into thinking that my apologies and my reconciliation were sincere, in retrospect, I wasn't fooling them. Uh, they also knew that they were powerless to truly change the selfishness of my heart. And in many cases, while I show external repentance, uh, internally there was, there was no change. This is the type of repentance that Joel warns us is invalid. We must have a, a heart change to truly repent. In verses 13 and 14, uh, we see another appeal to return to the Lord. Uh, this time, the reason is based on God's character that he is gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love and relents over disaster. If God were a God of justice only, there would be no reason to repent. Without the hope of being forgiven and accepted by God, uh, then as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, we are still in our sins, and we of all people are most to be pitied. If God is not gracious and merciful, then we may as well eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. Let's enjoy the little time we have left because judgment is coming. But God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is how Yahweh described himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it is how he has revealed himself throughout history, constantly calling his people to repentance and graciously providing forgiveness and restoration. The Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and in chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. God's purpose in providing the curses of the covenant is that the people would turn from their evil and return to him. The Lord spoke through Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, to turn back, to turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You know, the Lord will be glorified both in his judgments and in his salvation for those who trust in him. But God does not delight in pouring out his wrath on the wicked. Instead, there is joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. Verse 14 tells us that they should return to God because there is a possibility that he will reverse the curse and instead bless them. God has promised forgiveness and salvation when, when we repent and turn to him, but God does not always remove the consequences and the fallout from our sin. Uh, many times he does not. Uh, we remember uh, David and, and uh, his sin with Bathsheba, that after fathering a child with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, in an attempt to cover it up, uh, David learned from the prophet Nathan that the son that Bathsheba bore him would die because of his sin. Nonetheless, David fasted and prayed while the child was still alive. And when asked afterwards, David said, 
In 2 Samuel 2.22, he said this, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that my child may live. David knew God's character and that God delights to show mercy, and so he fasted and prayed fervently for seven days that God might relent and spare his son. And in David's case, God did not relent. Uh, David was forgiven. His sin was put away and covered. Uh, Yet, God did not relent in following through with the consequences of his sin. But it is possible. Uh, We see God relenting from judgment in another minor prophet, in Jonah. Uh, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, a great capital of of Assyria, and many times the enemy of Israel, uh, to prophesy disaster and call the city to repent. And they did. And we'll look at how they repented a bit later. But here is Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And here we see that God's grace and mercy is not reserved for the Jews only. Uh, Even the Assyrians, the enemies of the Jews, and a Gentile nation uh, were shown mercy by God. In the last part of verse 14, the hope is that God would leave a grain offering and a drink offering. The plea is that God would have a regard for his own glory and his own worship. Uh, If the people were to give a a first fruits of a grain offering, uh, that would mean God would have to provide for the people the fruit and the produce of the land as well so that there would be an offering to bring before the Lord. And this should be our desire as well when, when we go astray, to see the worship of the Lord restored in our lives, to have praises to sing to God, to have wholehearted worship to bring him and for his mercy and his grace and his kindness to us in Christ. Uh, wrapping up this section in verses 15 through 17, uh, we have some instructions on how this repentance should take place. Uh, these instructions echo the, the directions given for repentance provided in, back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which we read two weeks ago. Uh, this national call to repentance would be announced by a trumpet. Uh, they would consecrate a fast. You know, the law only called for fasting one day of year on the Day of Atonement, but since by their sin, They had brought the judgments of God upon themselves. They would now fast to signify their repentance. They would call a solemn assembly, gathering the people together. Uh, This would be a public, national repentance. You know, neighboring nations would even observe this gathering and and with the reverence which they returned to the Lord. Also notice verse 16, that all ages would gather, from elders to children and even nursing infants. Matthew Henry says that infants were brought even when they were at the breast that, and were kept fasting, that by their cries for the breast, the hearts of the parents might be moved to repent of sin. It's a reminder that the sins of a nation don't just affect those particular individuals guilty of sin. In a family, the effects of a father's sins are not limited to the father. Usually, his wife and children bear the consequences and the weight of that sin. In the nation of Israel and Judah, the sins of the elders and the leaders would result in judgment on everyone, even the children and even the livestock. In the second part of verse 16, the bride and the groom uh, should put off their wedding ceremonies to attend this solemn assembly. Uh, This call to repentance is serious. There is no business as usual. It was not a time for a wedding feast. The people should put that aside to fast and to gather with their brothers and sisters. In verse 17, we see the priests would lead in the repentance by by weeping and calling out to the Lord in prayer for the people. You know, this was the role of the priest, to be a representative of the people before God. 
Um, the people needed a mediator between God and man. Unholy man is unable to come into the presence of a holy God. And so God made arrangements through ritual cleansing and through the sacrifices to purify those priests for service in the house of the Lord. Uh, not that they were more worthy to come before the Lord, but the Lord chose them and gave them an honor and conferred it upon the tribe of Levi that uh, they would come near to God and serve in the temple. And it was the priest's role to offer the sacrifices for the, to atone for the sins of the people. And now that they had no sacrifices to offer, they would need to offer a spiritual sacrifice by leading in repentance. We actually have a model for the type of repentance that the Lord, through Jonah, is calling them to in Jonah chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 10. Here's what Jonah 3, 6 through 10 says. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Uh, We saw there that uh, in Nineveh, they were led by their king in repentance, just as Judah would be led by their priests. Um, They dedicated a fast, even for their livestock. Um, They showed signs of repentance. They turned from their evil and from their violence. Uh, They hoped in God's mercy that he would turn and relent. In God's providence, we see that pagan nation demonstrating for God's chosen nation what repentance should look like. And we see that in verse 17, they're even given words to use. Uh, First, they are to cry out to God, asking asking him to spare your people, O Lord. Uh, They're to cry out for mercy, knowing that the only solution to God's wrath is that his mercy would stay his judgment. The Jews can at this point, put no confidence in their works. Their only hope is to flee to God for mercy. And they're to to appeal to God's glory. Uh, If the Lord wipes out his people, what would the nations say? They might say that God, Yahweh, couldn't even save his own people. Uh, Instead, the nations should look upon Judah and see not only the might and the power of the Lord, but even his power to save rebellious sinners. John Calvin points out that God's glory is intimately connected with his salvation of his people. God would be merciful to them from a regard to his own glory. So we have seen this chosen nation set apart to be the Lord's turn away and wander from the truth and fail to uphold the requirements of the covenant. And as a result, they are subject to the curse of the covenant and the judgment of the Lord. Um, Let's not overlook God's intention in opposing his people. And same thing for us. God's purpose in fighting against his people and and sending all this destruction to them is that they return to him wholeheartedly. Uh, We see this in our own lives. When we become proud, when we become self-righteous, we think we don't really need God. He has a way of fighting against us with the goal of bringing us back to him and recognizing our need for him and his mercy. Uh, When we find ourselves wandering, our response should be to repent and to turn away from our own way and to return to the Lord and seek his mercy. 
Jesus began his ministry in Mark 1.15, saying this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus calls us to repent and believe. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, we, we read this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So by grieving over our sins, there's a true and godly grief that should lead us to, to repentance. And we are to repent and believe. We're to believe in the gospel, that great mystery which has now been revealed to us in Christ, the good news that he, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Joel reminds us to rend our hearts and not our garments. In verse 13, it shouldn't be like the apologies I gave my brother growing up. Um, repentance requires an internal change. If we have truly repented, then our external behavior should change absolutely. But true repentance is a change of the mind and the heart. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, <clears throat> answers what is repentance unto life. It says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his own sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So the Catechism reminds us that repentance is, is first of all, a grace of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, regenerates the hearts of people to bring them to Christ and to remove their hearts of stone, to give them hearts of flesh and an ability to recognize their sin and to believe in Jesus for salvation. And that same Holy Spirit lives in each believer, illuminating our sin more and more through his word and driving us to repentance and seeking God uh, and seeking his abundant grace and mercy. And finally, Joel reminds us that God's purpose in both judgment and salvation is that he would receive all glory and honor. I'll close with a quote from John Piper. He says this, Let us never lose sight of God's purpose in history, from grasshopper swarms to worldwide judgment to the, devastate, to the dissolving of sun and moon. His purpose is to be God in the eyes of all the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we ask that you would free us from our vices. Thank you that you have freed us from enslavement to gratifying the flesh, a freedom that was purchased by Christ's precious blood. Lord, allow us to feel the weight of our sin, to see the great cost that you paid to atone for it, and help us to hate our sin, Lord, to repent, to, to turn from it, and to return quickly to you, Lord, and to, vote, to devote ourselves entirely to your service. Lord, that you would rend our hearts through true repentance. O oh, Lord, May you be glorified in us through Christ Jesus himself. Amen.